All right, so Genesis 3, the curse and the covering. We're going back to the beginning because we're trying to get answers from the Bible about the condition of the world, why things are the way they are, and what we can do to be people of God, people of the word, in a culture that has gone totally sideways, in a culture that's confused about truth and about origins and about life and death. Where do you get your answers? Are the answers found in a human textbook? Are they found in your friends? Are they found in you know, some other religious system? Where are they found? Philosophy? Uh, well, actually, the Bible tells us where the answers can be found and the explanations for why things happen the way they do in this life. One thing that's going to come out clearly in this particular text is you're going to find out why we die. We die because there's a curse on this world. Because the wages of sin is death. And our first parents chose to eat something that was forbidden and they, re they reaped the consequences. And that's where we are today. We're in those consequences. We live on a cursed planet. But there's still hope. And in the midst of that curse, and God's going to give several curses. He's already cursed the serpent. We'll watch him curse the woman, and then he's going to talk to the man. In the midst of a, a chapter filled with curses, he's going to give us hope. He's going to tell us that he's going to cover us. And these, these will all foreshadow the gospel, the hope that we have together. Father, thank you for all the precious people that have gathered on this Sunday morning in this place. Thank you for all you've granted to us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the answers to all life's big questions found in these first few chapters of Genesis. Help us to have open ears to hear what you would say to us, a heart to receive it, a heart to take refuge in it, and a heart to act upon it. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now as God is putting forth the curses, Adam and Eve have eaten of the forbidden fruit they are hiding from God. God is walking through the garden in the cool of the day. I told you that may be a Christophany, an early appearance of Jesus Christ before Bethlehem, before the manger in human form. It does seem like whenever you see God appear to people in human form, it's probably what we call a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. So way back in Genesis, it's probably Jesus in some sort of human form walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It would seem that Adam and Eve in the garden experienced God walking into the garden at sunset, or maybe he was there all the time. There are some people that make a case that the Garden of Eden really became the, uh, an extension of the God's throne room or tabernacle. That may be the case as well. But we do know he came walking in the cool of the day and Adam and Eve with their makeshift garments out of fig leaves are hiding. And God asks that penetrating question, echoing through the garden, Adam, where are you? He wasn't asking for his geography. He was asking about his heart. And Adam said, well, I heard your voice in the garden and I hid because I was naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? And have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat of? And Adam, with the classic blame shift 101, he took the class, said, the woman. Remember that? That's two Sundays ago. I got a bunch of emails, nasty emails. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. You guys were very nice. But I said to you, that captures it. The woman. Many men have said that over the centuries. That you gave me. Then he blamed God. He blamed the woman. Then he blamed God. Then the woman blamed the devil. The devil made me do it. And the devil looked and nobody there to blame. 
And so this is what we got from the beginning. We've got a fall. Now, our first parents made the decision, and God said, in the day you eat of it, you will what? Surely die. And now they have, you know, with the fruit on their lips, death has gone into their soul. But God comes looking for them. I want you to see that. It's part of what I tried to tell you last Sunday that we, or two Sundays ago, we did a message called Hide and Seek. And I told you that even way back in the garden, God is a seeker of lost people. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, he has come, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Adam's hiding, Eve hiding, God seeking. Calls them out. And now the dialogue begins. And whenever you sin, here's the truth, and here's really the two simple truths in this message, there's consequences. Here they come out in a curse. And God is cursing the serpent first. He says in verse 15, Genesis 3, I will put enmity, that word means hostility, hatred, strife. I will put Genesis 3.15, God doing it. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. Now, as the Bible unfolds, the woman becomes a picture of Israel. We can see that in the book of Revelation. And there's this hostility. It's going to be the serpent, the devil, against mankind for sure. But it's especially against God's people. Israel, then the church, the combination of the two, hatred. I told you this explains a lot of history. Genesis 3.15 explains why the Egyptian pharaoh tried to throw the baby uh, boys in, in Egypt, uh, he's trying to throw the Hebrew babies into the Nile River because he was afraid. But behind him was the enemy, Satan, hostility, enmity. He wanted to make the river red with the blood of the Hebrew children. So God turned the Nile into blood. And he said, you're going to try to kill my people? I'm going to kill your God. The Egyptians thought the Nile River was a God, so God made it turn into blood. He made a mockery of their gods. You're not going to do that. Haman comes along in the book of Esther. He gets the king to sign an edict to destroy the Jewish population. Esther has to rise up to the moment. You are born, perhaps you came to the kingdom for such a time as this. And she comes and risks her life for her people. Haman is exposed and he hangs on the gallows and the, the uh, Jewish people are saved. Another age, Herod comes along at the time of Jesus He's threatened by this Messiah that's been, stars been seen. And so he kills all the baby boys, two years old and under, in the area of Bethlehem. And Rachel is mourning for her children. You have the Egyptian Pharaoh, you have Haman, you have Herod. I mentioned to you there's others that we could talk about, but most re in our most recent history, Actually not. We have Hitler, who becomes chancellor of Germany, rising to power in 1933. And now, and this is nothing new, we have all these nations, most recently Iran, saying they want to push Israel into the ocean. And they want that land for themselves. How do you explain a sliver of land no bigger than New Jersey? I've heard no bigger than San Bernardino County. No natural resources. It was basically underwater up until 1948. Nobody wanted the land. Why is there this debate about this land? Why this persecution against this specific group of people? It is, it is explained in Genesis 3.15. There's a hostility. There's a hatred. And the serpent, who ultimately is Satan, was trying to destroy the seed of the woman, Israel, and the seed of the woman that she will ultimately produce is the Messiah who will save 
mankind by crushing the serpent's head and his heel will be bruised. And you can think of the cross. He was crucified. He was bruised, afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, but it wasn't final. It wasn't determinative because he rose from the dead. But he will crush the serpent's head. He's already done that, but ultimately the enemy, Satan, will end up in the lake of fire. This is what the Bible says is the explanation for our history. This is what's going on in the world. This is why when we tell you about prophetic events and where you should be looking, we say, look to Israel, look to Jerusalem, because that's where it all started, if you will, and that's where it's all going to wrap up. Now he addresses the woman, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Now, ladies, you might want to mark that one. <laughs> I'm not highlighting that one personally. Now, my... <laughs> My wife has given birth to three wonderful boys, and I paced in the hospital many times. But I did thank God that I wasn't a woman as well. I just have to be honest. You ladies, man, it's amazing what you go through. And, and I know that some ladies have said that you know natural childbirth, that's what they go for, and some of them do do that, but some have thought an epidural is a pretty good discovery. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> and so they go through... <laughs> hours of labor. Where did that come from? It would seem that there was going to be a little pain in childbirth, but not as much as women suffer now. Right where one of the main callings of a woman is, not every woman will have children, but this will be the majority of women. They will have children. They will mother. They will raise a family. Right where her primary calling is, she will experience pain. In fact, in the next chapter, she's going to watch a son kill another son. She's going to see that death will become a reality even in future generations. And now God addresses her. And he says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, the Hebrew word speaks of sorrow. You shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now we'll get to Adam in a moment, but we know when she was by the tree and the serpent was tempting her, Adam was there. And finally, he ate of the fruit. What he was doing, we don't know, but he was being passive. But she was the one that was duped, and she admits it. She says, the serpent tricked me. He beguiled me, and I ate. And that was true. And God says, because you've done this, here's one of your consequences. Every time a child is born, there's going to be labor. There's going to be intense pain. And yet, in birth, we can see something, a reality that Jesus talks about in the Gospel of John. I'll give it to you, John 16, 20 through 22. He's getting ready to die on the cross. He's facing it the next day, and he says, John 16, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, Jesus says to the disciples, and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. John 16, 20 through 22. So life becomes somewhat of a travail. When we go through difficult times, they're compared to seasons of labor. But there's always this glimmer of hope that through the labor, a deliverance will come. 
In Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about the end times and what the, perhaps the church we know for sure is real, some people say tribulation saints, but we do know that people who are, are true to Christ are going to go through a terrible time, and they're going to go through what Jesus describes as ever-intensifying labor pains. And then deliverance will come when the Messiah comes to rescue his church in the rapture and the resurrection. But up until that point, it's going to be heavy labor, intensifying labor pains, and then deliverance will come. When a baby is born, we talk about labor and delivery. And that is the truth of what the Bible is saying life is about. Sometimes the delivery happens in death. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He didn't want to die, but he wanted to be with the Lord, which was far better, Philippians 1, 21 through 23. And so the woman is going to have this pain, and every time a child is born, it's going to remind us of the fall. The labor is going to remind us of the curse, the agony, the toil, the sorrow. The birth is going to remind us that there's still hope. There's a deliverance coming. And so we know that when a woman is in travail, it's not always pretty, right? They're screaming and yelling and threats, right? You did this to me! Guy has to duck and, you know. But then afterwards, it's okay. She still wants to be married to him, in most cases. And (laughs) so there's this labor, but then this beautiful child enters the world. And there's hope in that child's eyes, and parents start to talk about you know, a name, and what do you think he or she is going to become? And the hopes and dreams of Christian parents are that that child will change the world and preach the hope of the gospel, even though we know from the moment they're born, they're going to experience the curse and death. This is the world we live in. Morticians and ministers can tell you that death is not a natural thing. It's something we try to sanitize in our culture. It's something that we try to say, well, it's a cycle of life, but death is an unnatural enemy that entered into the garden along with the serpent. And now it's the experience of mankind, but it won't always be. There's a time coming when, pain, uh, when the sorrow of death and disease and pain and all those things will be no more. But the woman is going to have pain in childbirth, and I think it's about three children are born every second in the world. So it's happening all over the world. It's, it's repeated over and over and over again this reminder of the curse and the fall. Your desire will be for your husband. Some scholars, verse 16, see in the word desire that her desire will be be under the headship of her husband. She kind of left that covering. Adam did nothing, so she's going to come back under that covering, covering, and her desire will be only for her husband to cover. She won't try to usurp authority again. That's possible. But the other use in Genesis of the word desire is in the next chapter, chapter 4, look at verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7, Cain, uh, his, his offering's been rejected by God. God says these words to him, 4, 7, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire, there's the same Hebrew word back in Genesis 3, verse 16, Its desire is for you, but you must master it. So Hebrew scholars have said it's quite possible that the word desire does not mean she wants to come up under the the covering of her husband to submit to his headship, but her desire will be to dominate her husband, just like sin wants to master Cain, and Cain must master it. Same Hebrew word, that's why scholars believe that that's the possible meaning of it. 
If that's the possible meaning of it, it explains a lot, does it not? Because right from Jump Street, we got problems. Because a woman is going to desire to usurp authority over her husband and dominate him, just like sin wanted to dominate Cain. And he, look at the end of verse 16, chapter 3, shall rule, the word rule speaks of dominion, even implications of harsh rule, he will rule over you. He'll want to be harsh toward her. She will want to dominate him. And we got problems. Now, I know that none of you probably experienced this in your marriage. <laughs> that, <laughs> that there's a battle for authority, for whose direction is going to be, you know, take the lead and that kind of thing. We, we've got issues in our marriages. We have to know that this is a potential problem. This is probably what divides most marriages. This is why most marriages end in divorce and disaster. It's because there's, it's the will of two people. If they let their sin nature, their fallenness win the day, the marriage will be gravely affected. That's why in Ephesians 5, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes into a marriage relationship. Why? Because the key to setting aside yourself and not trying to dominate your spouse is the rule of the Holy Spirit. You shouldn't be ruling. She shouldn't be ruling, as it were. The Spirit should rule. And when the Spirit rules, God-given order will be there. I'm not saying there's not a God-given order. I've been telling you there is a God-given order. However, when the Spirit rules that, there won't be a desire to dominate. There will be a desire to die. That doesn't come natural. Everything in my flesh. Paul says, there's not one good thing in me that is in my flesh. My flesh is about me and me alone. And even when I think I'm doing something, you know, uh, lofty and high, I might be thinking about what's in it for me. <laughs> it's the me monster. And it must die in marriage. That's why Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Die to self and you will live. It is so counterintuitive. It's so counter my flesh. My flesh doesn't want to die. My flesh wants to live. <laughs> Let me live. Give me what I want. And every day you have to crucify your flesh. I love the image that Chuck Smith gave us of, you know, your old man is dead. The old self is dead. But every now and then the hand comes out of the grave. <laughs> and you got to... <laughs> labor pains it, it explains a lot doesn't it so sometimes you're in a marital spat and you got to ask yourself what's at the what's at the root of how i'm feeling because i'm not getting what i want doesn't that explain a lot because this person's not giving me well how about you start giving that person what they want, start blessing them, and maybe it'll come back to you. But that shouldn't be your motive. <laughs> Each birthday, we're reminded of both travail and hope in this battle. And now to the man, verse 17, to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you. It wasn't a suggestion. It was a command saying you shall not eat from it, Cursed is the ground. See the word ground there? That is ha-adama. 
It's the general word for earth used earlier. So this is where it's probably not just the ground, it's the world, it's the earth, it's infected because of Adam's fall. This is what Paul says in Romans 5.12. He says, through one man's transgression, sin entered the world and death via sin. Adam is ultimately blamed for the fall. He becomes what scholars call the federal head of mankind. He takes the blame, and God says, Adam, ha-adama, the earth will be cursed because of you, because you did not do what I told you to do. I gave you access to all the trees, save one, and you blew it, and now you're going to be cursed. Look at verse uh, 17. He says, uh, you shall not eat from it. Cursed, keyword, cursed is the ground uh, because of you in toil, same word as her toil in her childbirth. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now you're going to have problems in your main calling. You were supposed to cultivate and keep the ground. It's supposed to be a joyful thing for you to go and work and bless your family. Now you're going to have problems. This comes out when we go into the backyard to pull weeds. Look at verse 18. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. Apparently they weren't there in the pre-fall days. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Here's the curse. Because from it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. You're going to die. And you're going to go back to the stuff from which I made you. Your body is going to die. Here is the curse on the earth. Here is the curse of death. All in this fall chapter. All because of disobedience. All because God is true to his promises. And he said, if you do this, you're going to die. And now the judgments are given by God. And they're, they're sobering. Now all of mankind, all of mankind's progeny experiences death. Ecclesiastes 1.3, Solomon says, What does man gain from all his labor? at which he toils under the sun. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And even the earth won't remain forever, but Solomon's looking at life, and he's saying, what does living really mean? Generations come and generations go, and we tend to forget about those former generations. We think ours is the only one, but folks, people have lived and died over and over and over again. And this cycle is going to continue, or is it? And then later in Ecclesiastes, he says, God has put eternity in our hearts. He, ma he makes all things beautiful in their time. And there will be a time of resurrection. This pattern will be broken. And Jesus gave us a foretaste of that when he touched a coffin and a young man sat up who was dead. Can you imagine being at that funeral service? When he went into a little girl's room and called her back to life. When he called to the tomb and Lazarus came forth after being dead four days, he gave these little glimpses that he does have the power. And then in his own life, destroy this temple. He spoke of his body, and in three days, I will raise it again. That's how you can know Jesus is true. He said, kill me, and I'll raise myself. And he did. And books have come out over the decades attacking the resurrection accounts and their weak arguments, folks. Maybe Jesus had a twin. <laughs> Maybe everybody was hallucinating. A mass hallucination by 500 people all at the same time. Maybe the disciples stole the body. No, they were hiding behind closed doors, fearful of their lives. 
Maybe Jesus simply swooned on the cross. He passed out and revived in the cold tomb. An early doctor came in there, patched him up. No, he was dead. The sword went into his side. Blood and water came out. It's very clear. He was dead, and he's alive again. And he says, because I live, you will live. And his, his resurrection becomes the prototype for ours. Carl Sagan thought all there was was the cosmos said, in all our searching, the only thing that we found that makes the emptiness bearable is each other, close quote. Look, I like you guys. <laughs> but I, I got to tell you, if you and I are all we got, we in trouble. <laughs> Amen? I need something higher than us. You might think some people are pretty cool and pretty courageous, but we're all human. We need God to intervene for us. The more I live, the more I realize how desperately I need God. And here's the hope. But people who don't have hope uh, say things like this. This is David James Duncan. He writes a book called The River Why. He says, at last the cold crept up my spine. At last it filled me from foot to head. At last I grew so chill and desolate that all thought and pain and awareness came to a standstill. I wasn't miserable anymore. I wasn't anything at all. I was a nothing. A random configuration of molecules. If my heart still beat, I didn't know it. I was aware of only one thing. Next to the gaping fact called death, all I knew was nothing. All I did meant nothing. All I felt conveyed nothing. This was no passing thought. It was a gnawing, palpable emptiness more real than the cold, close quote. Wow, that's amazing. That captures life without God. Philosophers couldn't live with their own philosophies. Many philosophers killed themselves at the end of their lives. You know why? They couldn't live with their own philosophy. There's no God, there's no hope. If we're depending just on me or some superhuman, we're in deep trouble. And it's repeated over and over and over again. And people look at this death and they say, why? Thorns and thistles, weeds. I hate weeds. How many of you hate? There's some weeds. They look like they're alien creatures. <laughs> Yesterday, we were doing the work. I tried to pull a weed. It was growing out of the side of the building. And there were thorns in this and then there were little green things that were, they were coming up. I mean, it was, I had gloves on and the thorns were penetrating the gloves. That's why you pay teenagers 10 bucks an hour to come. <laughs> Let them deal with the consequences of the fall. And Jesus is dying and they put on him a crown of thorns probably harking back to the fall and the curse, and he was cursed for us. Never did the, these crown of thorns compose so rich a crown as blood runs down from his head, and he says, Father, I'll take the blame. This is what the cross is about, you guys. This is what redemption is about. This is the Messiah coming in to save us from our own poor choices. But Adam is going to go back to the dust. Adam will live 930 years, and for the rest of his life, he probably will never see God's face again. 
You want to talk about, you know, some of us, we make a mistake and we can't sleep. And we may go weeks and months living with the consequences. Imagine being Adam and Eve for 930 years. He never goes back to the garden. He watches things around him die, and he knows it's his fault. Wow. But a last Adam is coming prefigured in the garden, and he's going to do what the first Adam failed to do. He's going to live always for God's glory. He will taste the dust of death. He will wear a crown of thorns, and he will bear our sorrows and our griefs. You must know him, or you're going to die without any hope. Woody Allen, a lot of interesting quips come from him. He said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work, I want to achieve immortality through not dying, close quote. (laughs) Woody Allen speaks for a lot of people. He says, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) (laughs) Would you turn in your Bible to Ecclesiastes 12? It's the book right after Proverbs. Psalms, Proverbs. It's in the wisdom literature of your Bible. Ecclesiastes, written Solomon. Uh, another book by Solomon, Ecclesiastes, right after Proverbs. Go to chapter 12. He's um, lamenting life without God, life disconnected from God, and he certainly experienced that. Even though he knew God's wisdom, he blew it. And he says these words. This is Ecclesiastes 12. Uh, let's see here. Let's look at verse 3. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and mighty men stoop, the grinding ones stand idle, Ecclesiastes 12.3, because they are few. Those who look through windows grow dim. This is speaking of getting older and ears and eyes aren't working so good. The doors on the street are shut as the sounds of the grinding mill is low. What? <laughs> What'd you say? And one will arise at the sound of the bird. You get older and a bird chirps and you wake up. Teenagers, they could sleep through a battle. And all the daughters of song will sing softly. Furthermore, men are afraid of, high, of a high place. You get older, you don't want to ride roller coasters anymore. Amen? All God's people said? No? It's not true? You know, my problem with roller coasters, and I've said this before, I start analyzing the roller coaster. And the guy that let me on it, who's controlling the controls, and I'm wondering about his education, and <laughs> what exactly would he do in case of emergency? Terrible thoughts. (laughs) But it's reality. Furthermore, you're afraid of high places that terrors on the road. Drive slower. Almond tree blossoms. Gray hair. But there's there's stuff on the shelf for that. (laughs) The grasshopper. This is sad. Drags himself along. (laughs) And the capperberry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before this happens, before you die, before the silver cord is broken, the golden bowl is crushed, all images of death. The pitcher by the well is shattered. The wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Go to the book of Romans in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul also lamenting the reality of death and the grave. At the end of chapter 7, he's been talking about his flesh and the principle of death. Romans seven twenty four. he says, Wretched man that I am, 
Who will set me free from the body of this death? This is why memorial services and funerals can be a good thing if when you go, you begin to consider your own mortality. I have watched people. I've done more memorial services than I can count. And I have watched people literally wrestle with God in the pews. They know they have to face this. But they're hearing a message of hope in Christ, and I watch them, many of them, wrestle. Paul says, I joyful, uh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of death? Thanks be to God, 25, Romans 7, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. On the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Keep reading. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from what? The law of sin and of death. If you are in Christ, you are free. You have hope. You are not burdened by this law because death has been overcome. And from the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. Now we live in anticipation of what? We'll go down to Romans 8. Look at verse 20. Romans 8, 20 says, For the creation, this curse now, was subjected to futility, emptiness, not of its own will, Romans 8, 20, but because of him who subjected it in hope. God put a curse, but it's subjected to emptiness or futility in hope. That the creation also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of, here it is, childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, the guarantee of our redemption, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. What will it be? The redemption of our bodies. Back to Genesis 3. We'll finish it. We're going to live, but we've got to count our days. Lord, Psalm 39, 4, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am, Psalm 39, 4. Let that teach me to live for the right things and enjoy the days that I have with the wife of my youth. Now the man, back in Genesis 3, verse 20, called his wife's name Eve, expressing more his headship because she was the mother of all the living. Now, even though there's this curse, Adam knows she's going to have kids. He's standing on the promises. God's already said you're going to have pain in what? Childbirth. That means future generations are going to come. So he named her Eve, which means mother. She was mother of all the living, but Eve actually is related to live or the idea of a life giver. And the word mother in Hebrew is M-E-M. It's the word or the name Emma, and it means a life giver. Same idea, the strong water in the Hebrew picture language, M, mother, or the life giver. My wife is the mother of our children. I praise God for her. Husbands, we need to do that. We need to thank God that our wives are the mother of our children. Philip Melanchthon, one of the reformers, said, Eve's life is the seal of grace. It is the hope of future generations, even the hope of the Messiah coming and now with all the curses and all the ugly stuff, something beautiful happens. And the Lord God made garments of skin, Genesis 3.21, for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. The fig leaves were not enough. Just imagine a windy day. Not enough. <laughs> not enough. <laughs> so he's going to clothe them with something like a robe-like garment that may have gone down to their knees. 
or even to their ankles. Some tie this together with the garment of the, the Jews or the, even the priests. A full garment, that's what God does, covers their shame, covers their nakedness. But to do that, he makes that from garments of skin. And the implication is two animals die. Adam and Eve have not known death. Adam got the privilege of naming all the animals. He named the sheep and the lambs and so forth. And now, probably right before their eyes, maybe Jesus before Bethlehem kills two animals. And they must have been horrified because now they're seeing the consequences of their sin right before them in the shedding of blood. This is Marcus Dodds. This is profound. Listen to these words. He says, it is also to be remarked that the clothing which God provided was in itself different from what man had thought of. Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. God deprived an animal of life, that the shame of his creature might be relieved. This was the last thing Adam would have thought of doing. To us, life is cheap and death familiar. But Adam recognized death as the punishment of sin. Death was to early man a sign of God's anger. And he had to learn that sin could be covered, but not by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by, but only by pain and only by blood. Sin cannot be atoned for by any mechanical action, nor without expenditure of feeling. Suffering must ever follow wrongdoing. From the first sin to the last, the track of the sinner is marked with blood. It was made apparent that sin was a real and deep evil, they didn't die on the spot, but something else did to cover them. And that by no easy and cheap process could the sinner be restored. Men have found that their sin reaches beyond their own life and person, that it inflicts injury and involves dis disturbance and distress, that it changes utterly our relation to life and to God, and that we cannot rise above its consequences save by the intervention of God himself by an intervention which tells us of the sorrow he suffers on our account. And God, apparently in the garden, kills maybe two sheep as a foreshadowing of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And imagine being Adam and Eve now. Something else has to die for you, to cover you. And those skins that are mentioned here are mentioned in Leviticus 7, 8 as the skins that were given to the priest after an offering was made. So it sure seems that animals did die there. To bring what? To cover us. And John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he says, look, there's the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. He clothes us. If you are in Christ, you are covered with his righteousness. What was the cost? His blood. What was the cost? His life. What was the cost? Him bearing your shame. Him taking your punishment. Him carrying your sorrows. Him being, experiencing alienation from God. The darkness of judgment for sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God covered, cleansed by him. And the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, Genesis 3.22. This is divine dialogue, I believe, within the members of the Trinity. You can reference chapter 1, verse 26. He knows good and evil, and now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God's going to stop access to the tree. You say why? Because the tree had some sort of special power, medicinal. Uh, it gave life. And God says, I don't want him to take from it and live forever. You say why? R. Kent Hughes comments. 
Adam and Eve's bodies were alive, but they were dead. As residents of the garden, they could have eaten from the tree of life and perpetuated their body, bodily existence indefinitely. The garden would have become hell on earth, populated with the undying dead, forever living and forever dead, close quote. Wow. It's an act of love that he drives them out because he doesn't want them to live forever in a fallen state. And he knows if they do, they'll probably not seek him. So he drives them out. And now I would imagine Adam and Eve for the rest of their life are going to long to see God's face again. And that's going to come in the afterlife, but not now. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Out he goes, never to return. I don't know what that moment felt like for them, but it had to be heart-wrenching. All they knew, gone. You're out. And God did something radical. He drove the man out, 24, final verse. And at the east, the direction of the rising sun, and also, I believe, it ties to the temple. I'll tell you that in a second. He drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden seemed to be the entrance. He stationed the cherubim, which were very prominent, by the way, in the tabernacle, especially in the temple, and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Two cherubim were posted at the, apparently there was only one entrance into the garden. It was on the east. And if you get to experience um, Jerusalem, you get, if you take a tour, you come up the Mount of Olives and there's a little sitting place up there. And you can get a view of the, what's believed to be the Temple Mount. And this is the road on, you're on the Mount of Olives to the east that Jesus went down uh, the day of the triumphal entry when they were lauding him. They were calling him the Messiah and the, and the rabbis, the, the Pharisees were saying, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus said, if they are quiet, remember, the rocks will cry out. And he heads in. And he's going to go probably through the eastern gate. And the entrance to the, to the garden was in the east. And there's a parallel between the Garden of Eden and the temple complex or the tabernacle. God's special presence and dwelling. And now there's two cherubim. And I would imagine they're pretty intimidating. And they're, they're on top of the ark of the covenant. Angels' wings touching. There's... There's uh, frescoes of them in the later temple. The cherubim are prominent. And there's a sword that guards the way of the tree of life. And it's not wielded apparently by the cherubim. It's, it's solo. It's on its own. It's, notice the language. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming swore, sword which turned in every direction. Apparently it was in front of the tree or at the entrance of the garden. And it was all on its own. You, you try to time it. No, it's not going to work. You're out. <laughs> And you're not coming back in. And the flaming sword pictures God's justice and holiness guarding the way, an act of love. And when Jesus died on the cross, he entered the temple area and he cleaned it out and they put him on a cross. And when he died, bearing our shame, the curtain that divided the holy place from the holy of holies was cut by the sword of God from top to bottom. And the way is open. And if you're a Christian, the way is open. Amen? We now stand justified at peace with God and we have access to the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. But sin, please don't miss this, has consequences. You're covered, you're cleansed, but if you decide to disobey God, you're gonna get consequences. That's what this chapter teaches. 
God lets them live with the consequences, but he says, even though you've blown it, I will cover you. I will cleanse you. The gospel ultimately makes us blameless before God, but don't be mistaken. Sin still has consequences, and they follow what we do. So it is to the Christian to rest in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, to know righteousness is only achieved by trusting in him and him alone for your salvation, but it is also for the Christian to follow him because the one who follows him will not walk in darkness. They will have what? The light of life. Revelation 22, worship team, if you'd come up. Revelation 22, please go there. Last chapter of your Bible. I want to leave you with a little section on hope. There's a connection between Genesis and Revelation, the beginning and the end. Here's the end. We've seen the curses. Now we're going to see the curse lifted. Revelation 22, verse 1. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Revelation 22, 2. In the middle of its street, this is the New Jerusalem now when the resurrection's happened, everything's done. In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, its back, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse, the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants, that's you and me, shall serve him. And they, or we, shall see his face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall no longer be any night. And they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them. And they shall reign for how long, saints? Forever and ever. And he said to me, because sometimes these words sound too good to be true, don't they? He said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel, this is God's message to us, to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, says Jesus, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for... The fact that you cover us despite the curse, there's a covering, there's a cleansing in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you make us new in him, a new creation in Christ. But there's still a responsibility, and it is to live for that, that risen Savior that paid so much for our ransom. It's to live for eternal things. And Father, we all fight it. Constantly we fight selfishness and pride and lust and unforgiveness and so many things that come at us. The only answer is to take our refuge in you and find our strength, our power, our zeal from your power. So help that saint that might be just kind of barely hanging on today. Let them know that power is available. There's a throne of grace. We might receive mercy and help in our time of need. Our great high priest, he blazed the trail with his blood. Thank you, Lord, that it's paid in full, that the way is open. You took the sword for me. Lord, I pray for that person who may be on the fence in their walk with you, undecided, and to be undecided is to be decided. And if that's you, I would just challenge you. Trust in Christ today. Trust in, in the cross and the resurrection. It's, it's real. It's true. Believe on him and him alone for your salvation. And Lord, for all of us, help us to walk with you day by day to find hope even in the midst of our labors and toils 
to know how the story ends. Even though the beginning was not so great, the ending is going to be glorious. And until that day comes, help us to hold on to you, for you will never let us go. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.